right. Well, thanks again for, for being here. I know it's an encouragement to me and Josh and, and Noah. Um, and honestly, the, uh, uh, the, the lectures they spoke pretty much covers half the sermon, which is great. It, it, it all ties in perfectly together. Let's, let's go to God in prayer before we, we get started. Father, we, um, even though we're here to um, critique and evaluate and, um, um, and think more critically of these lectures and the sermon, we, we pray that that doesn't hinder the fact that we are still hearing your word, that we are still um, doing something higher than just encouraging and building each other up. Father, I pray that we are good stewards of the messages and uh, the, the teachings that came from Noah and, and Josh today. And Father, I pray that you guide my tongue, that as Noah said, you guide my pride, that you help give me humility um, to, to receive the feedback. And Father, I pray that, that you use this sermon um, to give us a strengthened um, awareness of just how sufficient and authoritative your word truly is. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. One of the, the greatest scenes, um, in my opinion, in the cinematic film industry is definitely Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And many of you are probably already thinking of the exact same thing I have in mind. It's that moment where Indiana Jones is in the marketplace. He's going face to face with this master swordsman. And the, the swordsman is trying to intimidate him and show off what he's made of. So he pulls out his weapon, starts throwing it back and forth. He's doing all these flourishes. And then you're, you're at that, that very anticlimactic moment where Indiana Jones just pulls out his pistol and shoots him and walks off. And, and the, the interesting thing is there's an actual story as to why they filmed the scene that way. Because that was not the original intent. Steven Spielberg intended for that to be this epic, climatic fight scene between Indiana Jones and his whip against this master swordsman. In fact, he, he went out of his way to find the greatest swordsman he could in the world just to get the scene done. And what ended up happening was the, the set fell way behind schedule. They were on a tight time crunch. And the day they were to film this particular scene, they, um, everyone contracted a virus on set, including Harrison Ford. So the last thing he was able to do was to move around to do this elaborate fight scene. And so as they're trying to figure out how to navigate around this, how to stay on, on schedule, Harrison Ford makes the suggestion of, why don't we just shoot the guy? <laughs> and that's how we end up with the greatest scene ever filmed. <laughs> <laughs> But we look at, we look at that, that scene in light of that story behind it, and that's a very good picture of what the church is facing today, where the world is, is full of all these worldly wise men, as Pilgrim's Progress puts it, where you have all this, these men trying to show off their intellect and the wisdom they, quote-unquote, have to offer, where they're flourishing and they're showing off their eloquence and their, their um, uh, insightfulness. And then here we are, just sick people, that have a weapon that not even a master swordsman can compete with. And so often the church forgets that we, what we have is something sharper than any two-edged sword, something that can pierce uh, uh, spirit and soul and joint and marrow. And because we want to be like the world, we often trade this for a rusty butter knife. 
And that's going to be what the text is about today. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. And in this passage, we're going to see Paul give two remedies to address the exalting of man's wisdom. In this passage, we're going to see Paul give two remedies to address the exalting of man's wisdom. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise according to the standards of this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in the craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. As Pastor Rob said, we've already been through the first two sections of chapter three. And just to recap on how this this particular passage fits in, let's let's, uh, remind ourselves of where we're coming from. Don't forget that the, point, the main point of the letter to the first Corinthians is to address a church that is as dysfunctional as you could possibly get. This is a church where they're getting drunk on communion. They're suing each other. You have Christians who are, or supposed Christians, even sleeping with their mother-in-laws. And in the first full, chap, full chapters of this letter, Paul is specifically addressing the issue of pe- the, the Corinthians being divisive over who baptized who and who's a disciple of who. And, and that's his main goal right here. So the first two chapters, he's, he's differentiating between worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. And then as we get to chapter three, he spends the first nine verses um, specifically targeting their pride over who, who is a student of who. And at this point, this is where he's, he's addressing the fact that, that the disciples are not someone to be worshipped. They're not someone to be overexalted. They're just empty vessels. And that God's the one who's actually doing the growth. He's the one you need to keep your eyes on. And then as we get to the next seven verses, verses 10 through 17, he begins to expand on the types of builders that are in the church, the types of, of teachers and ministers and so when he's referring to ministers, this could be in the context of a pastor, this could be in the context of a, a Sunday school teacher, or maybe even just a lay person that's informally teaching, or a biblical counselor. Any, anything like this would fit the category of what he's meaning by ministers. And he, he begins to talk about how there's going to be some ministers who build with wood, uh, uh, gold and silver and precious stone which is a representation of good, solid doctrine. And then you're going to have other teachers who are using wood and hay and straw, just lofty opinions, man's, man's own ideas, the doctrines that are contrary to what doc, uh, Scripture actually teaches. And then in verses six, 16 through 17, he begins to talk about destructive teachers, the wolves that you see in churches. People who aren't just teaching bad doctrine, but they're teaching destructive, heretical doctrine. 
to the point where it's actually damaging the church. And that's where we come in, in today's text. Well, as he had just addressed the fact that this church is bringing all these bad doctrines, all these heretical teachers into the church, he's now addressing the reason, the heart issue of why this is all happening in the first place. And one thing I like about Paul is that he's not content with just addressing the symptoms of the cancer that they're going through. He's not content just to have the Corinthians kiss and make up and and be done with. He wants to make a beeline straight to the pride that's been causing this whole issue in the first place, which is what this section in chapter three is all about. And, And here are my two goals with this sermon, is I want to show just how vain man's wisdom is compared to how infinitely valuable God's wisdom is. And my second goal is to show how even the most theologically sound of all of us are prone to embracing man's wisdom to one degree or another. Even myself. When you live in a culture that is constantly pounding you with the wisdom of man, you are inevitably going to be affected to one degree or another. And the second you think you aren't, you're, not, you're no longer taking heed lest you fall. You become arrogant and prideful over your own doctrine, and that's where you inevitably begin to backslide. So the first point, Paul's first remedy to address the exalting of man's wisdom is to humble yourself. Paul's first remedy to address the exalting of man's wisdom is to humble yourself. We see this in verses 18 through 20. And he begins by, by admonishing the prideful. We see this in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. And it's very interesting because notice how he's not saying, don't let anyone deceive you. He's saying, don't deceive yourself. Meaning Paul realizes that the Corinthians aren't just mere victims uh, of bad teachers, that, that if they were in a better circumstance or had better teachers, they wouldn't be acting like this. No, he's saying that because of your own pride for arrogance, I already know that what I'm about to tell you, you're going to try to justify yourself. You're not going to want to hear it. You're not going to want to admit that, that you're wrong. You're going to try to discount everything I say. Therefore, don't lie to yourself. Hear what I'm about to tell you. And that's, that's the same admonishment I'll give all of us today is the second you start embracing worldly wisdom, there's something about it that we just naturally don't want to be told that we, we were wrong. And oftentimes it's because the, the appeal that worldly wisdom offers us is that it makes us feel wise in and of ourselves apart from God. And we're, when we are at that point, we, the last thing we want to be told is that the very thing that we are becoming prideful is the very thing that's making us foolish. And that's where the Corinthians are at. And there's, there's, there's two possible outcomes of what's going to happen with this sermon that I preach right now. Either what I am preaching to you is going to be wood, hay, and straw, and it's going to be burned on the last day, and then I have to give an account to God. Oh, what I am preaching is, as Josh said, is the anustas. It's what God has actually breathed into Scripture and if your response to hearing it is to just discount what I, am, what I am saying God has proclaimed in his scriptures, 
to not think about it, to not deal with it, to not uh, deal with the areas that the Holy Spirit is showing where worldly wisdom has affected your Christian life, you're going to be the one to give an account. And the first thing we see is that in order for man to humble himself is that he has to count himself a fool. In order for him to receive any wisdom in the first place, he's going to have to realize that he's a fool. We see this in verse 18, in the second half of it. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this, uh, by the standards of this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And so what Paul is saying is, is he's dealing with Corinthians that the reason they think they're wise is not because they're going off of God's standard of what qualifies as wisdom. It's because they're going off of what the world standard for wisdom is. And essentially what he's saying is that in order for you to get wisdom, you, if you have to become a fool according to the standard of the, this age. The, the word they use there, he, Paul uses, is moros, which is where we get the word moron from. And the implication is that in order to get wisdom, the first thing you have to do is realize that you lack it. We, we see the same thing in James 1, don't we? When, when we're commanded that if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives without reproach. The, the implication is that you, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, you have to realize that you need it in the first place. And the Corinthians are not at that point yet. And the reason that you have to empty yourself of the wisdom of man before you actually receive true wisdom is because when you try mixing the two, that's like trying to combine oil and water. They, they, do, they do not go together. They have different foundations, different motives, different outcomes. They, they, there's no way to make them harmonious with each other. Turn, turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of his wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For every jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So right there we have this picture of two categories of wisdom. We have earthly wisdom, which is going to be prideful and arrogant, strifeful. It's not going to be open to reason. But then you have divine wisdom, which here is described as, as peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And you can't mix those two things with each other. It's impossible. And if you want true wisdom, you have to have a, a, a commitment to be fully devoted to the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, to sola scriptura. 
you have to make a commitment that no matter what your feelings say, no matter what your own experiences tell you, no matter what you've seen or heard or have, have went through, no matter what the appeal or eloquence of the, the truth presented before you is, if any of that goes against scripture, you have to be devoted to what scripture says rather than any of these things. And it, it's, it's always, it's, it's very interesting to watch the kind of work God does in, in Christians who have reached that point. Because you see their, their humility and their, their godliness and their wisdom just skyrocket when they have this kind of mentality. There, there's a young man at me in Delano Seminary named Jason who hasn't been a Christian for very long. He's maybe, maybe like six months or a year. And you look at his background and it's drugs, partying, never read a single book in his life. And, and actually one of the professors even began to doubt his testimony because of who he is now. And he reached out to his family and friends and it turned out to be true. And when he got saved, he made this commitment to Sola Scriptura. And you look at him now, and just in the first six months of Christianity, he learned Latin so that he's now reading Calvin in his original language. It's like, someone, he, it's like God just completely rewired his brain on a biological level. And as we look at verse 19, we see that the wisdom of man is just foolishness. Look, look at verse 19 with me. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. See, it, God, God is, views it as something as useless, as vanity, as um, pitiful. When, when man tries to muster up wisdom apart from God, this is no different from uh, the men who were trying to build the Tower of Babel. Where they were trying to reach the heavens by their own ability so that they could go around and say, look at how great we are. Look at what we're capable of. We don't need God to reach the heavens. We can do it ourselves. And this is no different from everyone who claims to be wise. And Paul elaborates on this by giving us two illustrations. The first illustration is found in verse 19 when he quotes Job 5.13. Look at verse 19 with me again. For it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. See, it's this picture that you, where you have a man trying to catch a fox, and the man can easily just use a cage or some elaborate trap. But instead, he chooses to use the fox's own cunning against him. Because God can easily just send a lightning bolt and deal with those who are wise in their own eyes. But because he wants to overemphasize the immense gap between the wisdom they have and what he has, he just uses their own intelligence, quote-unquote, to pin them in the corner. A perfect example of this is in the book of Esther. Just look at Haman and Mordecai. Which actually, that book was, is in, in the days of the, of the Jews, that was considered to be a comedy. That, that's how it was intended to be read. You know, you have Mordecai, who, um, oh, excuse me, Haman, who out of his hatred for Mordecai, wanted to hang him. So he set up these gallows. And what happens the night before? The king realizes what Mordecai had done for him, how he saved his life. And he asked Haman, how, if, if hypothetically, if I wanted to exalt someone who has, has been faithful to me, how would I go about it? 
And as prideful and arrogant as Haman was, what did he think? He's like, oh, okay, he's talking about me. So naturally, he suggests, have a big parade for him in front of the whole village. Show him how much, how much the king himself loves them. And so the king says, that's a great idea. You know, okay, man, we're going to have a, a parade for Mordecai, and Haman, you're going to be the one who leads it. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, the king realizes what Mordecai's plan was, or what Haman's plan was, and he hangs him on the exact same gallows he intended to hang Mordecai with. And honestly, I think the, the, the greatest example of God catching the wise in their own craftiness is just with Satan. It's so interesting when you, the way you see Satan interact with the cross prior to the resurrection, prior to the crucifixion. Because one second you see him enter into Peter trying to drive Christ away from the cross. But then you see him enter into Judas to betray him and to bring him to the cross. And I'm convinced the reason you see that is because despite how wise and cunning Satan himself was, he didn't have a clue of what the cross was actually about. And the very thing he drove Christ to was the very thing that crushed the serpent's head. Paul gives us a second illustration to show, to display how man's own wisdom is foolish. And this is seen in verse 20. Look, look at verse 20 with me. <clears throat> and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And Paul is quoting Psalm 94.11 right here. And the, the point here is that the way God sees man's own thoughts, his own philosophies, his own wisdom is like a fleeting breath. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. It's useless, it's empty, it has nothing of, of value. And we see this constantly with just anyone who's claiming to have some kind of wisdom in this world. Just look at any motivational speaker out there. Anyone who's trying to give you daily affirmations of yourself. The Oprah Winfrey's of the day. That is, everything they say it's just futile. Many of you may remember a man named Richard Simmons. <laughs> and for those of you who don't, he's, he, just imagine a small guy with afro, short shorts, that's, that's who this guy is. I, I actually came across a book of his this week called Remember to Sparkle, The Wit and Wisdom of Richard Simmons. Let me read you a few quotes I saw in this book. Every time I have a negative thought about myself, I would think of three positive thoughts to replace it. So in other words, if you, if you start feeling guilty over your sins, just think of, of a few good things about yourself. That'll, that'll help. Forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've made and be proud of yourself because you're doing better. When the reality is the issue is not that you haven't forgiven yourself. The issue is that you're too proud of yourself. Oh, this one, this is the last one. No one is perfect, absolutely no one. Like precious stones, we all have a few flaws, but focus on what you like about yourself. Don't focus on the sin stuff. And what this does is when you go to these motivational speakers to seek wisdom, it doesn't build up your self-confidence, it builds up self-destructive pride. 
And maybe, maybe you're here today, and it's not the motivational speakers or the, those who give daily affirmations to you that you're attracted to. Maybe it's just 16th century philosophers. The Thomas Aquinas's, the, the Aristotle's, the Plato's. It, it's so funny to me, because you often see when people want to come off as well-read or eloquent or insightful, you know what they'll always do? They'll post some obscure quote of a philosopher on their Facebook page. And the reason this is funny is because whenever you actually look into these philosophers, you just see how absurd they really were. A perfect example is from the father of philosophy himself, Rene Descartes. Many of you probably have already heard of him, I think, therefore I am. Do you guys actually know what that saying originally started as? Dubito ergo sum. I doubt, therefore I am. And the reason is because this man was so fixated on making man's wisdom his foundation rather than Christ, he fell into this utter state of constant doubt. Where if he was here, he would doubt that this pulpit actually existed. He would doubt if, if Chris was actually wearing a jacket or if Kelly was actually in ex- existence or, or anything like that. And him, he himself, he doubted if he existed. But the only thing he could not doubt was that he was doubting. Because if you doubt that you're doubting, what are you still doing? You're doubting. And honestly, a two-year-old playing peekaboo with his mom has more common sense than him. You you never see them doubting that their mom's in front of them. And maybe, maybe the thing you're attracted to, the worldly wisdom of the day, isn't the motivational speakers. Maybe it's not these, these 16th century philosophers. Maybe it's just the philosophy and psychology. Because one thing you need to remember is that psychology is not science. It's scientism. Which means it's philosophy that steals language from the scientific community to make it sound a little better. In fact, before 1879, when the father of psychology, William Wundt, came on the scene, psychology was never considered anything more than philosophy in the first place. And do you know why William Wundt began trying to turn psychology into a science? It was because the idea of a soul contradicted his atheistic beliefs. Because remember, psychologists and psychiatrists are not studying the brain. They're studying the psyche. Which, do you know what the word psyche means in Greek? The word psyche means soul. So you have these men who are denying anything immaterial, trying to study the immaterial soul. And there may be many of you who are saying, Luke, how can you say this is just philosophy? This is their test. This is an actual science. There's a man named Dr. Alan Francis who is a psychiatrist. He, he helped create the term bipolar disorder. And he also helped create a book called the DSM, which is what is used to diagnose those with quote-unquote mental illnesses. And a few years back, he wrote an entire book recanting having ever done these things because of how worthless these things are. <coughs> Listen to what he says in his book, Saving Normal. And keep in mind, this is not a Christian. This is a non-believer who's saying these things. We still do not have a single laboratory test in psychiatry 
because there is always more variability in the results within the mental disorder category than between it and normal or other mental disorders. None of the promising biological findings has ever qualified as a diagnostic test. And the reason that is is because you can't do a test on something immaterial. Trying to do a test on your soul is like trying to do an EKG on love or an MRI scan on the laws of logic. You can't do these things. And he continues on by saying this. The absence of biological tests is a huge disadvantage for psychiatry. It means that all of our diagnoses are now based on subjective opinion that are inherently fallible and prey to capricious change. It's like having to diagnose pneumonia without having any test for the virus itself. So in other words, whenever you see people receiving these diagnoses for schizophrenia, bipolar, anything like this, it's not because they did any test on them. It's because you have someone who has an atheistic worldview that's just giving you their opinion. In fact, let me give you three tests. You can write these down. Three tests just to show if you have unknowingly bought into worldly wisdom. Three tests to show if you have actually embraced worldly wisdom. Here's test number one. Is that you use the language of the philosophy instead of the language of scripture. You use the language of the philosophy instead of the language of scripture. Do you, have you ever used the term addiction? Because scripture speaks of that as enslavement. Or what about alcoholism? Because scripture refers to that as drunkenness. Maybe narcissism, because God sees that, as, sees that as pride. And maybe some of you are thinking, he's being pretty legalistic. Why can't we just use these terms but leave the philosophy out of it? Do I need to remind you that's exactly what the SBC proposed us doing with the Black Lives Matter movement? Use their language, but just leave all the philosophy out of it. Here's the second test, test number two. You don't ask basic questions about the philosophy. We, we, we don't ask where it came from. We don't ask what worldview this came from. We don't ask uh, the, the process where they reach certain conclusions from. Because first John for one tells us to test the spirits to make sure they're of God. It's very difficult to test the spirits if you don't know these basic questions. Next time someone tries diagnosing you as having a chemical imbalance, ask them the basic question of what that balance should be. Because you're gonna see the doctor get very uncomfortable when you ask him that question. The chemical imbalance that came about 50 years ago, and it didn't come from some test or some psychological study. It came from just an idea. And in fact, 50 years later, we still don't have a single shred of evidence that, it's, that anyone has ever had a chemical imbalance. Thomas Enzel, the psychiatrist who directs the National Institute of Mental Health, says this. There is no biochemical imbalance that we have ever been able to demonstrate. Irving Kirsch, the associate director of the placebo studies group at Harvard Medical School, School, says this. The biochemical imbalance theory of depression is in a state of crisis. The data just does not fit the theory. Here's the final test. And this is the big one. 
Test number three to see if you have embraced worldly wisdom is that you have strayed away from the sufficiency of Scripture. See, as Noah talked about earlier, sufficiency of Scripture and the authority go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. Because what's going to happen is the second you say that Scripture is not sufficient to address a certain area of your, in your life, you will have to go to man to fill in that gap. At some point, those two things are going to contradict each other, and you have to choose what's authoritative, psychology or this other philosophy or this motivational speaker or what Scripture says. Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not not some treasures, not most treasures. Every single uh, treasure of wisdom is found in Christ and his word. And what this means for us is that if we ever come across something claiming to be wisdom and we don't already see it in Christ and in Scripture, that is a false wisdom. And we're at a point where where basically the church doesn't realize how much they're exalting man because, because we don't ask basic questions like this, because we don't have a firm grasp on sola scriptura. Which ties us to the the final and second point. Paul's second remedy to address the exalting of man's wisdom is to boast in belonging to Christ rather than men. Paul's second remedy to address the exalting of man's wisdom is to boast in belonging to Christ rather than men. And in verse 21, look at it with me. He begins by just saying, so let no one boast in men. He does not want you to elevate man. He does not want you to be infatuated with the Dr. Phil's or the Jordan Peterson's or the Oprah Winfrey's of the day. He doesn't want you to put them on a pedestal. And in fact, he doesn't even want you to put the John Pipers or the Vody Bauckham's on a pedestal. It's not just philosophers. When we do this for godly men, we're just as worse as those who are doing it for, for, for Sigmund Freud. And the reason we are not to boast in men We see in verse 21, 21 and 22. Look at it with me. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. When Paul is using this quote, for all things are yours, this comes from a, a Stoic philosopher saying. Where essentially the idea was everything belongs to you. Therefore, you're self-sufficient. And Paul is completely doing a 180 with this saying. He's saying all things are yours because you're dependent on someone who's self-sufficient. And he begins to give this catalog of what all, all the things that belong to us are. And he begins with saying, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. Because don't forget, these are people that are being divisive and starting factions over which particular leader they like the best. And Paul is saying, there's no reason to divide these men because they all belong to you. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, stop stop having these factions between these men because they all belong to you. In fact, look look at verse 8 with me in this chapter. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
It doesn't matter what role these ministers play. It doesn't matter uh, the degree that they serve in. They all are one. They're in unity with each other. And when you start trying to start factions of them, you're, you're neglecting the fact that they all belong to you. And, and the other thing is, these are people who are bragging that they belong to Paul, that they belong to Cephas, that they belong to Apollos. When the reality, this is saying that those apostles belong to the Corinthians, not the other way around. Look at Ephesians uh, uh, 4, 11 through 12, real, real quick. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. See, right here, he's, saying, he's not saying he gave the church to these people, right? In that text, he's saying he gave all these shepherds and teachers to the church. And not only do all these teachers belong to you, but life and death itself belongs to you. You know, for the believer, those who are trusting in Christ and not in themselves, even death has lost a sting. The only thing death can do for the believer is just hasten them, hasten them on to glory. This is exactly why Paul in, in Philippians can say that he's torn between the option of just holding up and having his head chopped off in prison and dwelling in Christ with Christ for all eternity versus staying here and serving the church. Because both, both life and death serve him. And not only do all these teachers, not only does life and death belong to you, but pr the present and the future. This is, this is in the sense of the already but not yet. If you are in Christ, you are an heir with him. You, everything around you is in your inheritance, and it belongs to you the second you put your faith in Christ. But it's not to the future that it comes to full fruition. This is what, what we mean when we say the already but not yet. And what happens is we undermine all of these blessings when we start exalting man and putting him on a pedestal. And we start gravitating towards the wisdom he offers rather than what God has already given us. Just, just look at Adam and Eve. You know, the, they were given an entire forest of abundance fruit to choose from. This wasn't in the sense of where, where God told them, this is the one tree you can't eat out of, but here's one tree that you can. No, they had an entire forest to choose from. And yet, what was it that, that, caught, that drew Eve towards that tree? What did it offer her? Wisdom. It was discontentment that actually drew her to the tree. She wanted wisdom that, Christ, that God did not give her. And what happens is, as Noah said, Scripture is sufficient for to equip man for every possible good work. And when we become discontented with all these treasures of wisdom that Christ has already given the church, when we start going to Oprah Winfrey's or the Dr. Phil's or to a therapist, Rather than to your own pastor, just to show you what God has already said about your situation, we're no different from the Israelites going back to Egypt, putting their hope in the, their horses and chariots and all the wisdom that they have, have to offer. 
we're, we're like a little kid that, that they're, they're pairing God with this extravagant, luxurious gift. And as they unbox it, we're just infatuated with the bubble wrap. And, and we're at a point in society where if you have the audacity as a Christian to say that God's wisdom is sufficient for you and you don't need man's wisdom, you're considered a danger to society. Imagine that you're in a third world country that is scarce of water, has nothing, it has very little to offer, and you've had the opportunity to build a well in the city. And this is some magical well where it has everlasting water, where it's never going to be tainted, it's never going to run out. It has this overabundance of minerals and vitamins that, that, can, that can more than sustain anyone who drinks out of it. And as you look around the city, you see, a, you see several other wells. You see some that if you drink from, you're going to die. But then you, there's a, a few other ones that you can technically drink out of it, but it's murky and grainy and filthy. If you're a decent person, you're going to be telling everyone around you to, to, to stay with this well. Don't go to these other wells. This one has everything you could possibly be needing. Why would you go to these muddy, murky waters? And that's what I'm saying. Don't go to a therapist or a psychiatrist or an Oprah Winfrey when you have scripture right here. And as we look at verse 23, we see what the climax of our true boast is. Look at verse 23. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. See, the thing that is our true boast is not in who belongs to you. It's not even the fact that death and life itself belong to you. It's the fact that you belong to God, to Christ. All these other things are just symptoms of the fact that Christ owns you. And if you belong to Christ because Christ belongs to the Father, that means you belong to the Father as well. It is impossible for anyone to belong to the Father unless he first belongs to Christ. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, the life. Apart from him, no one will see the Father. And here's the great truth. Is if you're a believer here today, all this inheritance that you have received is not because of your own eloquence or your own wisdom or your own ability it's because of Christ living the perfect life and dying the perfect death, and you are just reaping the benefits of it. And as long as you believe in Christ's work, that inheritance is already yours. And there may be some of you here today who are professing Christians, and the thing I would warn you about, which is Josh got into this earlier, a genuine Christian wants to hear God's voice. They want to be corrected. They want to be purified of all man's wisdom. If your response to being confronted with Scripture is to twist it so that it fits man's philosophy, because you care more about believing man's wisdom rather than actually hearing what God says, that's a sign you may not even be a believer. As we wrap up, We've talked about how the two remedies for worldly wisdom are to humble yourself and to boast in belonging in Christ. 
And I, made, I alluded to the fact earlier that if, if we have the audacity to say that Scripture is sufficient, we are seen as a danger to society. And I want to make the point that that's not just for unbelievers. Believers would say that too. Let me read a quote that I came across this past week. This is from a, a, a female conference speaker slash preacher, which that alone should tell you what she actually thinks of Scripture. This is what she says. This is an on, on an article about if Scripture is sufficient for counseling abuse victims. Pastors and other individuals who believe they are equipped to address abuse, trauma, and mental health issues solely from the Bible have a gross misunderstanding of brains, trauma, and mental illness. The bottom line is that biblical counselors, which just to clarify, is not the same as Christian counselors. Biblical counseling is what me and the elders here from too. They believe in the sufficiency of scripture. She continues on by saying, the bottom line is that biblical counselors have zero qualifications to fully serve those with mental health issues, abuse, trauma, or other psychological difficulties. Pastors who are not also licensed therapists with proper credentials need to defer to professionals. The Bible isn't enough for abuse victims. Just as it could be devastating or potentially deadly for a pastor to attempt to fix a physically injured person or infected person by reading scripture, so it's dangerous for pastors to try and act as trauma and mental health counselors with hurting individuals. The Bible isn't enough for abusers either. If a person has committed abuse, they need both consequences from law enforcement and significant long-term psychological counseling by a trained professional. And she ends with this. When we treat the Bible as a mental health text, we are not only doing a great disservice to victims of abuse, we are disrespecting the Bible itself we are twisting this sacred scripture into something it was never meant to be, a trauma manual. Most pastors believe this. In the 80s, John MacArthur's church was actually sued over a counseling case where they had a young man who had become very sad over a breakup he went through. And he, this man ended up killing himself. And the family sued the church on the grounds that they believed God's wisdom could help him more in this situation than man's wisdom. It is my sincere prayer that every single member of this church can stand firm on the sufficiency and authority of Scripture the way John MacArthur and his church did. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, if it was not for your word, we would not last. Father, we praise you for giving us your, your fully sufficient and powerful and efficacious word. And Father, we come before you apologizing and repenting of how often we take it for granted, how often we are dissatisfied with this and just drawn towards the eloquence that man tries to offer us. Father, we all pray that you make us devoted to only your word. We pray that you protect us from whatever wisdom the word tries to throw at us. And we ask that you make us a people who stand firm on only what you say. In your son's name we pray. Amen.